minister to us. Open up your word, open our eyes, and show us, Lord, your word, your plan. And Lord, we'll give you all praise and we'll give you all glory. We'll give you all praise, Lord. For who else would we praise but thee? Who else would we worship but thee? Oh God, you are worthy. You are worthy of everyone who has breath that they would praise you, Lord. Lord, minister to us and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to get ready to get started into this thing of end times. And um, sometimes the thing that I hear is, make it simple. There is no simpleness to this. Um, Men of old have found that out a long time ago. There is no simpleness to this thing of end times. Let me start off in, in this manner, if I may, and... I married Dr. Lugerson. He used to say to us in prophecy class, no matter where you're at, when God says, church, come up, the church is going up. No matter what your theory or what your view may be, when God says it's over, it's over. But we are to study. We are to look into it. It's like a large puzzle. Have you ever put one of those large puzzles together? When you first put all them pieces out there, you're trying to just find a piece that will connect to what? To another piece. And then a, another piece. And at first, it's, it's kind of tedious and slow. Because you've got to find the pieces that will hook together. You can't see the whole picture yet. Oh, you see it on the box sometimes. They'll show it to you. But there's some of them still yet that don't show it to, to you. But you start with it. And eventually as you get more pieces together, it becomes easier to put the other pieces where. That is what the end times is like. For the early church was nowhere near in times per se. We are closer to it. We have more pieces to put together. Schofield reference Bible, when he first wrote the first one, he didn't write the second one. He had been long gone, didn't really write the first one, maybe. But his notes in there from the revised standard changed from the first writing of Schofield. There are things as we move down through the years and discovered more and being able to put more pieces of the puzzle together is becoming a little bit more clear. Also, when first Schofield was written, um, guess what? Israel was not back in the land. Schofield could have never imagined nor Darwin, could he ever imagine the issue of what's taking place today in Islam and with the Muslim world? They never foreseen that. Couldn't put that in the puzzle. Okay. This has been something that's gone, been going on from the first century of the church. 
And in the first century of the church, many thought Christ was coming right back. That he was coming right back. He wasn't going to be going long. He was coming right back. We're here today and people are saying sometimes just the opposite. We've been hearing about his coming ever since he left. And guess what? He hasn't come yet. So we hear about that. And it's one of those areas that the church constantly sometime, and I'm going to say this, stumble or cause themselves to stumble. We're not interested in putting a date down. I'm not interested in trying to prove a theory to you. What I am interested in is showing you this, that God's word is true. And what we want to trust in is God's word on the long run. That's the whole purpose of this now. I'm not trying to prove this theory over that theory or which theory is better than that theory. What I want to show you as we go through this is what scripture says. Two words that really stick out is that the Lord says, be watchful. Then he says, be ready. Be watchful. Be ready. Because, see, the end is going to come. I don't care what we say. Christ is going to come back. One thing is assured. The church is going to go up. The millennium reign is going to take place where Christ will rule for a thousand years on this earth. All of that is going to take place. When, where, how, oftentimes we don't know yet. All millennial, there will be no physical millennium. There won't be a true thousand years. Why? Because they really believe that that is taking place right now. All millennium believe that Christ is reigning right now. And he's reigning through his people. The millennium is the present spiritual reign of Jesus with his people. And Jesus may return to the earth at any time. The tribulation that occurred wherever Christians are persecuted or wars or disasters take place. They believe that's the tribulations which we're going through. Not a seven year tribulation per se. Because they do not take the seven years as something literal but something that's symbolic of what Christians are going to have to go through until Christ comes back. So it's an ongoing type of a thing. All millennials affirm the thousand years to be a figurative expression of the complete present period from the resurrection of Christ to his second coming. During this time, Christ is reigning on his throne in a spiritual kingdom. Many of the early church fathers also held to the millennial view. They held to it because they did not have many pieces of the puzzle. But they believed in that return of Christ. And they believed that Christ was reigning through his church and through his people. When you go to post-millennialism, it's after the millennial period. The Old Testament prophecy comes The Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel and the kingdom are spiritually realized and are fulfilled in the church, they believe. 
Jesus will return to earth after the millennium when the overwhelming majority of people throughout the world embrace the gospel. It's a sense of when the world gets better and better and better, then he will come. Then he will come. From that view comes many different arguments within the church sometimes. Oh, you're trying to make the world better. Oh, you're trying to make the world better. Well, as Christians, we ought to. The good works that we are assigned to do or that we should be doing should do something to impact the world. But our good works is not what's going to bring Christ back. And we need to understand that. That is not going to be our good works. But that's what they hold to. And they hold that the great tribulation occurred either in the first century A.D. or that there will be a time of persecution immediately preceding the millennium period. But it won't last long. Premillennialism hold that Christ's second coming precedes his establishment of a glorious kingdom of peace and righteousness on earth. He shall personally reign from Jerusalem with his saints for a thousand years. God will rapture the Christians from the earth before or midway into the seven-year great tribulation. Jesus will return to earth after the great tribulation, but before the thousand years. In premillennialism, there's that area where you're going to go into tribulation, you're going to go towards that mid, and boy, then you're going to take, don't mix it with mid-trib, because it is not. It is not. God will rapture the Christians from the earth before or midway into that seven-year great tribulation, and Jesus will return to earth after the great tribulation, but before the thousand years. Pre-rapture is another word that is used. Pre-rapture is basically saying, boy, the church is out of here before tribulations. Boy, we all desire that one. We all want to be gone. And that's what the pre-trib is. But I want to remind you, these are theories. These are theories. And I'm not saying these men did not have sincere heart. These men do. That's why we have them. That's why we study them. That's why we look at all of them. You go to any good Bible college, Bible university, seminary, you're going to learn them all. You have to go through them all. Because one of the things that they don't want is this here. The people or the church of God should not be ignorant, nor should they be broadsided by something. Pre-rapture is before the tribulation. Mid-rapture is the middle of the tribulations. And post-rapture is after the tribulation, the second coming and the rapture are one of the same in the posts. And in the posts is simply that, boy, at the end, boy, church goes up, comes right back down. Go up, meet Christ, and come back with Christ in the air to set up his millennial kingdom. 
the whole process with a lot of these things, again, they are the theory part. And what we want to be able to do is really come to that place where, boy, we're right there. And we're learning from it. And we're willing, uh uh-oh, and we're willing to allow ourselves to learn from it. And that's what it's for. It's for us to be able to learn. And we want to be able to learn. And we want to be able to say, Lord, teach me. Teach me. And we want to be able to be taught of the Lord. And all these things in which we are going to endeavor to learn through what we call end times. And we want to be able to stay with it because it's important to be able to do so. Now, when you're in this, remember, other people may hold other views. And that's okay, that they hold a different view than what you hold. I'll never forget the young man who was here with us for a couple of years, took a church, <clears throat> another alliance church, and after about three months he gave me a call. He said, Pastor Brown, do you know that this church don't believe in the pre-rapture? So? You're not there to teach pre, mid, or post. You're there to teach the word. Teach them the word. Teach them the word. Because see, in our class, in this certain class with Dr. Leguison, about one-third of the class held mid-trip. And them boys were good in proving their points. And the rest of us were pre-trippers. But it's not worth fighting about or arguing about because again, when God says it's over, it's over. Your job is to be watchful, to be ready. God has said, no man knoweth the hour or the time. I think that towards his coming, but I think sometime trying to put all this stuff together. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I hope we can practice some of this. Because I think it's in here for a reason. Chapter 13. And I think we have to remember this sometime. Go to verse 12 with me. Listen to what Paul says. Now we see but a poor reflection in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Then he says, Now I know in what? Yeah. I only know a little bit. I only know a little bit. I don't see it all yet. And I don't know it all yet. I only see a little bit of it. And then he says, Now I know in part, and then I shall know what? Yeah. When I'm with him, I will see it all. 
I'll know it all. Okay. But until that time comes, I only know part, and I don't know it all yet. And it all hasn't really been put in place where I could really see it. But remember this, that the Pharisees, they came to Jesus asking for a sign. And Jesus wouldn't give them a sign. But he did give them an answer. Go to Matthew 16 with with me. Matthew 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You now, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. But you cannot interpret the signs of what? Yeah. Look at the signs of the times in which we're living in. Listen to what's happening during the times in which we are living. Have your ears tuned to that so that you can put them with Scripture or with the Bible. And then continue to watch but also be ready. And he says, A wicked and adulterous generation looks for miraculous signs but none will be given. It except the sign of who? Jonah. Who would ever believe that Jonah being swallowed by a large fish or well or whatever you want to call it would live and be thrown off onto the shore? Jonah is also a sign of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Who would ever believe that such a thing would have taken place or could take place? But it has taken place. And he says, that's the sign. The one who liveth is true, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all things that have been stated will follow. Russell, Jehovah Witness founder, predicted also at one time that the world would come to an end. And it didn't happen. So this is not a new argument among people. Russell urged all to study the Bible and warned as many people as possible of the impending end of time so that they might be survivors 
of a first judgment. Jesus' 1,000-year reign on earth and a second judgment when only the 144,000 people from all of human history would be taken into heaven. Heaven got to be awful small if it's only 144,000. But it was one of those areas that even in the cultism, they bring this area in. It is not something that is. Illusion. It is not something that you and I need to be fearful of. And sometimes what we made in times, doomsday, and everybody gets scared. Everybody gets frightened. We don't want to study in times because of the fear and the terrible things that happen. As we study the end times, I hope this will happen to you. There becomes a joy inside of you that says everything my God has prophesied is coming true. And he has told me when I see these things, look up for my redemption does what? Draws nigh. And I rejoice I rejoice. I don't want to prolong it. Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. And we ought to have a joy about it. Because we're going to see him. Now, it's different if you're not living for him. If you're not living for him, you want him to hold off. And everything in life that you want to do, And maybe when you're 99 and a half years old, you'll say, Lord, I'm going to live for you. No. He wants you to do that today. No matter what age you are today, He wants you to live for Him today. And that you have this joy and expectancy of His coming. There's that whole area. I have eaten almost nothing since yesterday noon. It is the last day of the year, 1842. Again, Israel was not in the land yet. Which, according to Mr. Miller, could be the last year of what? Of the world. Mr. Miller was the forerunner of the Seventh-day Adventist, Sister White, who was put down as the founder of Seventh-day Adventist. But Miller was the forerunner. Adventist means come. And the whole process was that area. A New England farmer turned lecturer named William Miller. And his whole thing was that the world was coming to an end. And he predicted it in 43. Then he went back. He said, oh, I forgot to add the zero in for the first year. And he, so he pushed it back to another year. 1844, and it didn't happen then, and then five years later, he died, and then some of his followers, who we know today as Seventh-day Adventists, picked up some of his stuff, and they also then said, oh, what he was talking about is what was happening in heaven, not on earth. (laughs) 
1945, we had the atomic bomb take place. So people could begin to predict, boy, we could burn this world up. We could burn it up. Because the Lord said that he would purify it by fire. And, and the whole thing just began. But in 1962, the Telestar, the first television satellite is launched. Now we're able to say, boy, people would be able to see those two witnesses all over the world. So just as things begin to happen, we begin putting a little bit more pieces of the puzzle together and say, boy, this is now possible. Because before we used to say, well, those two witnesses that lie dead over there in Revelation who prophesied and so forth, how is the world going to see them? Now it just sounds like, now we're saying, boy, the whole world can see. I don't think God's going to need any of our technology. Then 1970, boy, Hal Lindsey wrote The Great Late Planet Earth. Now Hal Lindsey, boy, I enjoy his writings. But Harold Lindsay also agreed. If he was writing the great late planet Earth today, he would have to make a lot of changes. Because what have taken place from the time he first wrote to the second time. But one thing that I appreciate about Harold Lindsay, Jeffrey Grant, who opposes some of what Harold Lindsay says, and, 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 and they write against each other, he endorsed... Jeffrey's book. It says it's one of these must-read books to be able to really see the end time. Knowing that Jeffrey is against some things that he says. But yet, they can compliment each other. And they can write and say, hey, you need to read how Lindsay's book. Oh no, you need to read Jeffrey Grant's book. And it's a compliment rather than being at odds with each other. Even though we're different in some areas, we can still, because the bottom line with both of us is this, Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And these things just begin to take place. And we're able to see them. And in 78, you know what happened to the Jim Jones, and then you had the South Korean group that was meeting. They left everything, their jobs, their homes, everything. Went out waiting for the Lord. Well, the Lord didn't show up. Then you know about what happened in Waco, Texas with the divinity group. And then the Heaven Gates group. They all drunk some poison because they was going to go meet the Lord in the sky. So this has been an ongoing debate issue. And then in 1999, all of you remember the Y2K thing? Get your beans, get your water stored up, get this stored up. And everything went on just the same. After Miller comes a British theologian by the name of John Nelson Darby. You can study Darby. You can study from where he got his vision from and his views from. But Darby started what we know as dispensationalism. And he divided what he called church age and so forth. And others began to pick up on that. 
and begin to use it. And it's very still, it's very popular yet today, dispensationalism. And some people lock themselves into dispensationalism, and that's okay. That's what really strengthens them and helps them. The thing is, with dispensationalism and everything else, remember again, we're talking about a theory. We're talking about theories. And this whole thing, Darby's Theology, a book that became a decade nonfiction bestseller later, was really the great late planet Earth. What you and I need to understand is that in times, it's, it's like a fever. It catches, it spreads. But we need to understand this can lead to things that are not very popular because the Jewish people have always, in most cases, been persecuted when it comes to about talking end times. In the medieval time, we may have, as Christians, killed more than six million Jews of what Hitler did because we blame the Jew for the punishment of what God was going to do in tribulations. And the Jewish nation or Jewish people have taken hits from everybody, even the Christians. Jesus of the Bible alone with his petty God is a tyrant. A loving being would not care how or who you worship and would offer the same reward regardless of belief. A truly and just being would judge me based upon my action and deeds, by merit of my character, not on whether I believe or not. This person, now I'm going to tell you where I got some of these that we're going to look at. That heaven is for real because the young man came out and said he falsified and he lied. The book has been retracted somewhat. But people forgot he was only six years old, six, seven years old. And some of the statements that people come up with following that retraction. When Christians do things that are improper or wrong, the unbelieving world just taps right into it. Now this young man is going to make God. Jesus of the Bible, along with his petty God, is a tyrant. A loving being would not care how or who you worship and would offer the same reward regardless of belief. He doesn't want God to tell him how to act or how to be, but he wants to tell God how to act and what to be. Catch that? And then, if he would just read Scripture, he would understand God has already judged us all because God said, all have 
And only a living, sovereign God who can see from the very beginning to the end could make such a statement that all in every generation have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And therefore, all they deserve is damnation and hell. But I have made a way for them to escape that. But the judgment has already been given as far as all of mankind. Another one writes, Saved! Believe what you wish to believe, but please stop imposing your values on me and forcing me to follow your rules. That sounds like the Taliban. So in their thinking, Christians are trying to do with them the same thing Islam or Muslims would try to do. Now understand this, because as we go into this, we're going to look into it a little bit closer. Islam and Christianity is going to fight. We've been warring for years. We both, in a sense, want to dominate the world, but in different ways. Islam wants to do it by force. Christianity wants to do it by faith. Your choice. Islam wants to take away the choice. In the Quran, and I will show you some of them as we go through this, it says to go into the nations of the books, of the people of the books, and you be quiet at first. But as you become the majority, or as you gain power, then you institute your religion. Now we're seeing that in France and we're seeing part of that take place in England. Remember what the Lord says? Look at the times in which you're in. Read the signs of the time. And his whole thing is that, boy, we're no better off than Islam. This person says simply, boy, maybe what you believe is a lie. The scripture says for you to be fully persuaded. Are you fully persuaded in what you believe is the truth? Or are you on the borderline? Don't know. The Lord said if you're on the borderline, he says you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. I want you to be hot or be cold. No middle ground. But this person says, have you ever thought in a sense, maybe what you believe is a lie, it's a myth? What do you believe? What is it that you yourself really believe? That's what you have to ask yourself. Understand this. Nobody else can make you believe. You're the one who has to choose to believe what God has said, and that's between you and God. And I would say, base your belief on what the Word of God says, not on just your thoughts. This person simply says, I'm 100% sure. Boy, that's, that's a lot of confidence. That's a lot of sure, surety. 
I'm 100% sure that Christianity is false and hell doesn't exist. And I don't base my belief on vague threats of punishment from superstitious people. Well, what he didn't put in his statement was this. Where do you get the basis for your belief? Are they your own thoughts? From where are they coming from? For all of us who believe, we have to base it on something. To just believe what you believe is nothing but an atheist because an atheist believes there is no God, but that comes from the mind of the atheist. But he's a hundred percent sure. And see, I'm one of those that would go to him and say, I'm 99.99999 sure that there is a God. Why do I use 99.9999? Because the question that's going to follow is going to be this. Have you ever seen him? That's why I leave that little space right there. But I am 99.99999 sure that there is a God. But I haven't seen him, per se. Then he goes on. In that whole area that sometimes we fight with. What? Return? And this is one of those scoffers that Peter talks about now. What? Return? You're so foolish and you're so weak-minded that you believe in somebody who died that they're going to return? He has been returning now for 2,000 years and still a no-show. He is not coming back today, tomorrow, or in the future. So wonder God put what he put in his word. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. Not because you want to. Look what this guy is saying. My knee's not going to bow. And God knows I'm going to have to make his knee bow. So I'm going to tell him up front every knee is going to bow. Whether it wants to or not, that knee is going to bow. Because he's saying, My knees will not bend. And I will not need ice water in hell, as you say. You are babbling, incoherent nonsense. As Christians, when we speak, we need to be able to back it up scripturally, but more than just scripturally, historically. Because our God is the true God of history, as well as the God of the Bible. History proves our God. Because what our God has said about history, we can go back and find it and see it. And one of those evidences is simply this. He said he would bring Israel back into their land, back in their country. And Christians got excited in 1948 when Jews went back into Israel. Why? Because that's what God promised. 
And they've been there ever since. You are babbling incoherent nonsense without one iota of proof to back up your statement. History tells us that it was the Persians who set Israel free from the Babylonians. And even gives a particular name. But God called that man by name a hundred years before he was born. The Bible speaks of a man doing this a hundred years before he was born. God said, boy, the eastern wall, that Jesus would come through that eastern wall in Jerusalem. Historically, we know three times that eastern wall has been tried to be opened by man. And God has stopped it three times. Because the only way that wall, that door, is going to be opened, that eastern gate, is by Jesus Christ when he comes. But historically, we know three times that 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 man has tried to open that wall that door, that eastern gate, and it has not happened. Go to me to Second Peter 3, 3 and 4. Second Peter 3, verses 3 through 4. <clears throat> he says, In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, when he brought the flood onto an ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Second Peter. I was in chapter 2. I was in chapter 2, because I supposed to go there too. Fourth and nine. So let's go back to 3, 4. We'll come back. Three and four. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own what? Evil desires. You see that young man? My knee's not going to bow. He's not coming today, tomorrow, or in the future. They will say, Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our father died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. That everything is going on just like it always has gone on. Go to Matthew 24 4. Go to Matthew 24 4. 
He says, <clears throat> Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceive you. Watch out that no one deceive you. People are going to try to deceive you and tell you there is no coming. People are going to try to deceive you in many different ways. And you're the one who has to guard your heart. You're the one that has to know that God's word is true. You may not know the day nor the hour. You may not know every little piece of the puzzle. But what you do know is this. Jesus is coming. And just like I trusted him for my salvation, I'm trusting him in that. And that he's going to come again and receive me unto himself. He's coming. He's coming. I don't know when, but he's coming. And he says, watch. Watch. Be on the lookout. Don't allow yourself to go to sleep on this. Be alert to it. Be of sound mind to it. Explore it with your mind. Read the signs of the time. Watch them. Be aware. Go to verse 44. Also in Matthew 24. And again, is that little warning that he gives us there. And we all need to just constantly be taking note of those little warnings that he gives us. And he says, so you also must be what? Yeah. Now, when we get to Revelation 22, he's going to tell you the importance about being ready. And why you need to be ready. If you remember the ten virgins with their oil. Five of them were what? Ready. And five of them, they were not ready. Hey, they were not ready. Though they went out with them, they were not ready. Hey, and he says, be ready. And that's one of the things that you and I have to be watchful and be ready. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Be ready. Be ready. Luke twenty one twenty eight. <clears throat> Luke twenty one twenty eight. Jesus is coming. And there ought to be a rejoicing behind that. Verse 28, he says, <clears throat> When these things begin to take place, now, boy, he kind of gives you a preference up above and so forth, but he said, when you begin to see these things take place and take in shape, you ought to begin to say, Boy, my Lord is coming. He's near. He's near. He's near. As these little episodes takes place, we can't put a time on it. Will this last for two years? Will this last five years? Will this last ten years? We can't put that time on it. 
But there's one more thing we can put down and say, boy, it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. This is happening. And because these things are happening, we can say, God is marching us to the end. Because they're happening. See? And we need to be watchful and aware and don't allow people to deceive us in that area. See? And he just simply said, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your hands because your redemption is drawing where? Near. Yeah. Need to be ready. Now back to Second Peter 2. <clears throat> Go to verse 4 with me. 4 through 9. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he bought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah. Now, now why in the New Testament would he go all the way back to the Old Testament to give us an example? What God wants us to catch there by mentioning Noah, understand with Noah, Noah preached that rain was going to come for over a hundred years. For over a hundred years. Noah preached it was going to rain. And guess what? For a hundred years, people didn't believe him. We're preaching Jesus is coming. And guess what? There's a lot of people who don't believe it. And sad to say, there's a lot of people in church that don't believe it. But he's coming. The reason we can say people in church don't believe it, because John 3, 3 says, if you believe these things, they will purify your life. If you really believe these things, it has an impact on your life. It will cause a change in your life. If you really believe it. It's just like mama said, clean the house. Daddy said, clean the house. When I come back, the house better be clean. If you really believe mom and dad was going to take some action when they came back and that house wasn't clean, some point you got busy cleaning that house. All because mom and dad said it. Jesus said he's going to return. Do we believe it? And he says, Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, again, go to the Old Testament to give us an illustration of his judgment and what he did. You don't find no traces of Sodom and Gomorrah today. But we know they existed at one point. We'll find nothing today. What is God saying? My judgment is sure. My word is sure. And he goes on, he says, By burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, 
who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. Do you ever become anguish and heavy in heart by what you see that is against God's will? Does your heart ache? Do you grieve within when you see the ungodly live in such a way as though there is no God who's going to judge them? We know if they do not find the Lord what their end will be. And that should weigh heavily on all of our hearts. Especially our loved ones. And he says, boy, for the righteous man live among them day after day. And that's what we are. The righteous of God living among what? Ungodly people day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of what? Of judgment. Second Peter three thirteen. 3.13-16 But in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new what? Are you really looking forward to that? See, that's the joy that we have. That's why we ought to rejoice. Because we know there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no spot, no thing of sin. Some people ask, well, how's God going to do that? What is he going to do? I, I, I don't try to figure out some of the things what God's going to do. But God can make a new heaven and a new earth. Now catch this. Before there was a heaven and an earth, there was who? God. And God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. The Lord Jesus Christ says, boy, my father has you where at. And nobody can snatch him where. If God can hold me in his hand while he create a new heaven, I'm safe and secure. He can hold me in his hand while he makes a new earth. God can hold all those who are saved in his hand why he recreate because see sin will have never entered into this new heaven or this new earth I don't know if that's how he will do it or not but it could be because he says he's going to do it And he goes on, he says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, you're what? You're looking forward to this. Now, before this happens, all these other things have to happen, but yet I'm still looking what? I'm looking forward to that. 
And that's my joy. That's what I'm rejoicing over. So when I see these things happening, I'm getting closer to that new heaven. I'm getting closer to that new earth. I'm getting closer to dwelling with Jesus when I see these things happen. It's not doomsday. It's rejoicing day. It's not fearful day. It is rejoicing day. And he goes on and he says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation. If God was to come today, how many might be lost? If the church was taken out today, how many people's fate might be sealed? God says, my long-suffering and my patience mean salvation for others. And he goes on and he says, Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you, with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of this, of this matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to what? Understand. Hard to understand. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So he said, there are those who will take scripture and they'll do what? Twist it all kind of ways for their own destruction. They will distort it. People put it together little by little, little by little. Be watchful. Be ready. Amen. Go to Revelation 22. Because he uses the word there. Some have the word quick and I'm coming quickly and some have the word here soon. It says in 22.12 he says, Behold, I'm what? Behold, I'm coming. Just stop right there. Behold, I'm what? Yeah. Do you believe that? See, there's no use going any further in that verse if you don't first what? Believe that right there. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. And then examine yourself. Are you ready for his coming? Barbara Norris passed Thursday night. And on Thursday night she made her transition from earth to heaven. And Larry and I, when we were out there visiting her, what we talked about to her was her security of her faith. That it was her faith that was going to take her on this next journey. It was her faith in Jesus Christ that was going to take her from earth to heaven. 
And we went through a little bit of Hebrews chapter 11 because there is the faith. Without faith, we cannot please who? Please God. And we talked about faith and believing. Because see, the scripture is by faith. We believe them by faith. And it is that faith that we believe in Jesus Christ. It is my faith that says, I am saved. Because of what scripture says. It is faith that tells me, I am one day going to leave here and I'm going to see my Jesus face to face. Because that's what scripture says. And I believe it. It is faith that grabs hold. And it is faith that says, Jesus is coming. If you ever want to test your faith, you ask yourself that. Do you really believe Jesus is coming? Because if you really believe he's coming, we'll live differently. We'll keep pressing on. We'll keep allowing the Holy Spirit to improve us, to make us better, to do more, to love him more. We'll allow the Holy Spirit to keep working in our life. We'll allow the Word of God to keep speaking to our hearts because we believe Jesus is coming. And then he says, soon, soon, soon. Soon there in the Greek, the soon is soon after the present time. Soon as I'm done speaking, soon as I'm done, then this is going to happen. That's one. But the one that is related with here in Scripture is simply this, is B. Soon is, is the warning that when it happens, it's going to happen so quickly, you don't have time to get ready. If you're not ready, you don't have time to get ready when it happens. Talking about getting your heart right. If the heart isn't right, you don't have time to get it right when it happens. Oh, I got to get my house in order. If it's not in order, when the guests knock on the door, you can't. They got to be ready. And that's what that word soon there says. It's going to happen so quickly that you don't have time to get yourself together. You got to already be ready. Are you ready? Are you ready for his coming? Are you ready for whatever God's going to do in the near future? That is not going to shake you. It's not going to bother you. And the issue is, are you watching? Are you watching? Israel is called the center of the world. And in ancient times, Israel was the center of the world because all trade, just about everything, had to go through that area in one way or another. 
Israel is the only little piece of ground that every nation has basically fought over and have desired to have. And Israel's God's time clock. Keep watching it. Don't lose sight of it. Keep your eyes on it. And then next week as we begin, we're going to look at this long, long fight between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac. For Ishmael is the father, you could say, of Islam and of the Muslim group. And Isaac is of Christianity, per se. In Galatians, it speaks of them in this way. One was born of the flesh, which was Ishmael. And the other one was born of the spirit, Isaac. Ishmael of the flesh, because she was not past her bearing years. And it was conceived by the plan of man to do this. Of the spirit, when Sarah brought forth this child, she was way past her bearing years. And no way possible for her body to produce a child unless God intervened. So Galatians says, one is born of the flesh, one is born of the spirit. And we're going to, and we're going to look in those things just a little bit more. And then we're going to try to discover over this journey the children of Ishmael. We're going to be looking at geographical. You're going to be having a lot of history area with me because we're going to be trying to tie things in. Now, Gog and Magog. We will look at, and I'll give you warning for you can go look at it for yourself, study it, whatever you want to do, because I'm quite sure mine's going to be a little different. Gog and Magog is something that takes place way before Armageddon. And oftentimes we put Gog and Magog with Armageddon. And I'm going to separate those two. And as we go through it, I will give you scriptural reasons why they are separate, so that you can see them for yourself. This is not going to be a short study. And I don't know how to make it... As, as we would say, simple. You're going to have to put on your thinking cap. You're going to have to look at history. You're going to have to look at scripture and draw the conclusions. My job is not to cause you or to persuade you to think as I think per se or believe exactly what I believe. My job is to lay it out there and you look at it. And you search it out. And you study it. And you make your decision between you and the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, 
that, Lord, that you've taken blinders off of our eyes. But you've also given us a mind and a desire to search out for truth. And though, Lord, we know you are 